Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 10th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal agreed with the WCAB that it has sanctions jurisdiction after the withdrawal of a lien claim. In this case, the California Correctional Peace Officers Association Benefit Trust paid money pursuant to its disability policy to David Martin Jr., an association member, after he filed a workers' compensation claim. The association then filed a lien against his prospective workers' compensation award for more than $44,000, which is the sum it paid to him. Dan Escamilla, a non-attorney hearing representative, filed this lien and represented the association before the WCAB. After Martin's attorney petitioned for costs and sanctions against the association and Escamilla for alleged misbehavior during proceedings in Martin's claim, the association withdrew the lien. At one point, Escamilla sent a letter to the work comp judge afterward, acknowledging receipt of notice of one of the subsequent hearings on sanctions and attorney fees, but claiming he and the association were not obligated to attend any hearings after the association withdrew its lien. In total, he failed to appear at four hearings on the petition for costs and sanctions. After two petitions for reconsideration and removal, the WCAB panel ruled that withdrawal of the lien did not deprive the work comp judge of jurisdiction to determine whether sanctions should be imposed for Escamilla's actions during the pendency of the lien, and he therefore was not excused from appearing at a proceeding on the sanctions issue held after the lien was withdrawn. The WCAB ultimately affirmed its award of $3,280 in attorney fees. That's 8.2 hours at $400 per hour against the association and Escamilla for the failure to appear at the four hearings. The association filed a petition for a review in the Court of Appeal assorting the failure to notify them that a hearing held subsequent to the COVID-19 pandemic was to be held telephonically was a deprivation of due process. And that failure to appear following the withdrawal of the lien was not sanctionable bad faith. And finally, that attorney fees are not permitted for an attorney expending time litigating on his or own own behalf. The Court of Appeal disagreed with these arguments and affirmed the sanctions in the unpublished case of California Correctional Peace Officers Association versus the WCAB. It noted that both the work comp judge and the WCAB found that all members of the workers' compensation legal community received notice that hearings would be held telephonically due to the pandemic, and that representatives should have, and with the exception of Escamilla, did in fact determine how to attend hearings telephonically. The court further said that in light of the considerable pressures placed on courts and 
administrative bodies caused by the pandemic, the general notice that hearings would be held telephonically was sufficient to place these petitioners on notice and that they had a duty to determine how to make the appropriate appearance. A U.S. military veteran filed a federal class action lawsuit against the makers of an anti-malarial drug distributed to military forces, claiming the drug made tens of thousands of veterans permanently sick. The lawsuit was filed in the Northern District of California by veteran John Nelson, who accused drug makers Roach Laboratories and Gentech of failing to inform the public of severe side effects of melfoloquine, which is known by the brand name Larium, a drug given to U.S. service members to help prevent malaria. The drug makers marketed and sold melfloquine in the U.S. military for service members deployed to Somalia, Afghanistan, and other foreign countries. Melfloquine is an anti-malaria drug discovered by the U.S. Army shortly after the Vietnam War as a result of the U.S. Army's huge post-Vietnam anti-malaria drug discovery program. The drug was subsequently marketed worldwide by F. Hoffman LaRoche. There's no question that safe and effective anti-malaria drugs were needed in the second half of the 20th century, once it became apparent that the infecting agents had developed resistance to the mainstay of anti-malaria therapy. However, within a decade of melfloquine being marketed, the safety was in doubt. The Food and Drug Administration even required the blood to carry a black box warning due to the severity of its side effects. Roach pulled Lariam from the U.S. market in 2009, but generic versions are still available. Nelson was a U.S. military service member who was prescribed melfloquine when deployed to Afghanistan. Upon taking the drug, he immediately began suffering severe and irreversible side effects, which continue to this day but he had no knowledge that the neuropsychiatric side effects he was experiencing could be due in any way to melfloquine. The drug insert did not adequately warn of the drug's toxicity, and U.S. military service members are not typically provided with the drug insert and would be unlikely to receive any such information. The suit alleges that at the time they sold the drug to the U.S. military, the defendants knew of the substantial danger of severe and irreversible neuropsychiatric side effects of melfloquine. And safer and effective drugs for malaria prevention existed on the market at the time. But allegedly, the defendants had no desire to rebrand melfloquine as a mere secondary or alternative option for malaria prevention, as that would have extinguished its hold on the market and strong demand for it by the U.S. military. The takeaway here is, will there be similar litigation and after-the-fact reports of similar problems with the current mandated COVID vaccines a few decades from now.
And in regulatory news, the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board has adopted its final new rules of practice and procedure. The new rules went to effect on January 1. The primary purpose of this rulemaking effort is to formalize the process for remote hearings, electronic filing, and electronic service that developed during the coronavirus pandemic. The WCAB proposed several new rules to create processes for noticing and objecting to remote hearings, remote appearances, and remote witness testimony. The board also proposed new definitions for appearance, hearing, and testimony, and revised existing rules regarding appearances to facilitate these processes. The newly adopted rules and the related final statement of reasons are posted on the WCAB's website. CalOSHA just updated its FAQs on COVID-19 prevention emergency temporary standards to incorporate new guidance from the California Department of Public Health on isolation and quarantine periods. Governor Newsom's 2020 executive order states that the recommended isolation and quarantine periods in the emergency temporary standards will be overridden by any Department of Public Health applicable isolation or quarantine recommendation if the emergency temporary standard periods are longer than those recommended by the Department of Public Health. And the Department of Public Health just lowered the quarantine period to only five days. The Department of Public Health updates also clarified quarantine for workplace settings for fully vaccinated persons who are booster eligible but have not yet received their booster dose. Persons who are exposed to someone with COVID-19 and who are unvaccinated or vaccinated and booster eligible but have not yet received their booster dose. They must stay home for at least five days after last contact with a person who has COVID-19 and then test on five days. The quarantine can then end after five days if symptoms are not present and diagnostic specimen collected on day five or later tests negative. If a person is unable to test or chooses not to test and symptoms are not present, Quarantine can end after day 10. Then workers who have questions about COVID-19 hazards at work can call Cal-OSHA to speak with a representative during normal business hours. As more and more states look for opportunities to manage prescription drug utilization in their workers' compensation systems, Closed drug formularies continue to receive increased attention as a tool for managing the utilization of prescription drugs. One of the key components is to provide evidence-based guidance to physicians when prescribing drug treatments for injured workers. One such formulary is the Official Disability Guidelines, or ODG, drug formulary, which has been implemented in several states. A new report from the National Council of Compensated Insurance examined changes in price and utilization trends in workers' compensation prescription drug experiencing. 
States with recently adopted mandatory use of the ODG had a decreased utilization of drugs, which contributed to overall cost declines in each of the three states immediately after formulary, formulary implementation. Then in states that already adopted the guidelines, overall drug costs also continued to decrease in each of the subsequent post-reform periods for both states. Overall cost declines were driven by decreased utilization of drugs, with a more significant decline in utilization of drugs requiring prior authorization relative to those that do not require prior authorization. Opioid utilization declined by more than 20% in each post-reform period for both states. However, similar declines in opioid utilization were observed in non-formulary states for the same periods. Utilization of topicals continued to decrease in Tennessee in the post-formulary periods while the share of topicals increased in Arizona. Payers in non-formulary states may use some prescription drug management practices when authorizing certain drugs despite the lack of a state-mandated drug formulary. The U.S. Postal Service has asked OSHA for a temporary waiver from President Biden's coronavirus vaccine mandate, setting up a showdown on pandemic safety measures between the president and one of the government's largest agencies. In its January 4 letter to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the deputy postmaster said that requiring workers to be vaccinated against the coronavirus or present weekly negative tests would hurt the ability to deliver the mail and thus further strain the nation's supply chains. He said that a vaccine or test mandate is likely to result in the loss of many employees, either by employees leaving or being disciplined. And they have to deal with unions over the details. And also, he complained that collecting records for its 650,000 employees is a prodigious undertaking, and it may require the agency to purchase additional technological infrastructure. If the Supreme Court upholds the rule, the Postal Service said it will accept the impacts of the rule and adjust to it accordingly. The Postal Service has over 30,000 facilities nationwide. And in medical news, for more than 50 years, the UCLA Labor Center has created innovative programs that offer a range of educational, research, and public service activities within the university and in the broader community. And the center just published a new report which finds that fast food workers in Los Angeles County are at higher risk of contracting COVID-19 in addition to facing difficult working conditions that became more acute during the pandemic. This study was commissioned by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health to understand the experience of fast food workers during COVID-19 and more generally. The report is based on 417 surveys and 
in-depth interviews with non-managerial fast food workers in Los Angeles County. The report is the first in the nation to provide an in-depth portrait of COVID-19 safety compliance through the lens of fast food workers themselves. According to the study, COVID-19 profoundly impacted the lives and workplaces of fast food workers in Los Angeles County, and fast food workers had their own specific set of experiences and challenges related to the pandemic. They said most employers provided masks and gloves, yet half of workers reported that the number of employer-provided masks or gloves was insufficient or provided too infrequently. Nearly 40% purchased their own masks or gloves, and more than 1 in 10 needed the supplies, but could not afford to buy their own. After the mask mandate, 80% of workers said customers were required to wear one, Yet, many workers interviewed shared stories of unmasked customers. Over half experienced negative interactions with restaurant patrons or co-workers over COVID-19 safety protocols, including being yelled at, threatened, and physically assaulted. Notification of potential transmission was also haphazard. Employers rarely or sometimes notified workers Code, uh, rarely or sometimes notified workers of COVID-19 exposure in the workplace. A third said employers took no action of any kind to support exposed workers. Fewer than half were allowed paid sick leave if they or a co-worker contracted the virus. Nearly one in five workers said they experienced some type of retaliation when asking for protection or taking leave. These findings showed the need for policy intervention in the fast food industry, and the authors made several recommendations. The most significant was the recommendation that authorities enforce COVID-19 safety protocols and provide workers with adequate protection from retaliation and abuse for enforcing those protocols. The numbers from the holiday weekend are in, and California has broken every record for new coronavirus cases. The California Department of Public Health reported more than 230,000 new cases this week, more than twice as many as has been reported in a single day before. Of those patients, 303 were being treated in intensive care, an increase from 278 a day earlier. The Marina del Rey WCAB notified litigants that the office would suspend in-person trials this Monday and Tuesday due to COVID concerns. However, they commenced to, to open their office again by Wednesday, January 5. Los Angeles County suspended all criminal trials for two weeks due to the challenge of dealing with the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. The L.A. County news came a day after a panel of federal judges ordered the suspension of all federal trials in Los Angeles, Riverside, and Orange counties. There was no timetable given for a return to normal operations in the federal court system. And the Los Angeles healthcare system has been hit with widening staffing shortages as workers get the virus.
The 79th Annual Golden Globes will be held January 9th at the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills, California. The same location as usual, but this year there will be no audience, no red carpet, and no media credentials provided for journalists to cover the event. Down south, unprecedented numbers of sick medical staff are causing gridlock in hospitals across San Diego County. The CEO of Scripps Health said that 14.5% of the health system's workforce, that's about 700 workers, were out sick. In San Francisco, more than 600 classrooms in San Francisco were without their teachers or aides, with only 157 substitutes available. Every district employee with a teaching credential was ordered to take a class, including the superintendent and other high-ranking officials. Also in San Francisco, hundreds of police officers, firefighters, and transit operators began the New Year's under quarantine due to exposure or in isolation due to a positive COVID test. And in other news, the global market for insurance fraud detection was $3 billion in 2020, but it's now projected to reach to reach. billion by 2027. Fraud Analytics, one of the segments analyzed in a new report, is projected to record a 24.4% growth rate and reach a $4.9 billion milestone by the end of the analysis period. And China, the world's second largest economy, is forecast to reach a fraud detection projected market size of $2.2 billion by 2027. Among the other noteworthy geographic areas are Japan and Canada, each forecast to grow at 20.4% and 19.3% respectively. Within Europe, Germany is forecast to grow at about 15.9%. Applied Underwriters announced its 2022 growth plans. In 2019, the founder and chairman of Applied Underwriters reacquired his company from Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Since then, he has been buying businesses, creating new subsidiaries, welcoming new teams of professionals, and growing his firm domestically and internationally. Following what it termed a pivotal year for the company's growth, (coughs) the leaders have set the realization of larger scale plans and the continued organic growth of the existing and newly introduced coverages and products as the two principal items on the corporate agenda. According to the CEO, the company able to continue working almost at full throttle to add to its financial capacity, bolster stability, and add several new business units in the U.S. and abroad despite the pandemic. The Excess and Surplus Lines, or ENS, is a specialty market that ensures things standard carriers will not cover. Applied considers the domestic, traditional market to be way oversupplied. They say that primary carriers are not attaining adequate rates 
nor reasonable terms and conditions. Conversely, Applied views the ENS market as quite attractive in some segments, and they expect the ENS market to harden further before leveling off. ENS coverages are characteristically complex to underwrite. In its statement to stockholders, Applied listed a number of new subsidiaries and strategic strategic acquisitions in niche sectors and the creation of new practices. For example, it acquired Concept Special Risks and it completed its acquisition of Centauri Specialty Insurance and also completed the acquisition of Oklahoma Property and Casualty Insurance all three in February. They also acquired the Florida Casualty Insurance Company in March and then acquired Alaska Timber Insurance Exchange in the fourth quarter. An applied moved into the EU and Middle East market for specialty business from its Paris and Cologne offices and they decided to underwrite special, uh, several specialty lines including professional indemnity and DNO through its extensive wholesale broker and local retail agent network throughout the EU, Israel, and other countries in the region. The CEO concluded by saying the company is hoping to close some bigger deals in 2022. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Skarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.